The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is Michael Gayet, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Preston Pesek, who uh, many of you may not be aware of, but you may have heard of his uh, former company, Spacious. Uh, Preston, for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get interested in real estate? And talk about uh, the journey of launching a business to the ultimate exit to WeWork. Sure. Thanks for the intro. Thanks for having me. Um, so I um, I got into real estate because I've always been just as a young idealistic person coming out of school. I was interested in the way that the built environment shapes the way we do things, and vice versa, the way that we do things shape the built environment. Um, I thought about a career in architecture and quickly ran into the massive economic headwinds of a career in architecture, um, and decided to uh, change tracks at a young young enough age to get into real estate finance. Came to NYU in 2004, uh, graduated with an MS in real estate from the NYU Shack uh, Graduate School, um, and I got a job at SL Green working on a trading desk there for their uh, mortgage REIT called Gramercy Capital, originating commercial mortgages and rolling them up into securitized uh, bond structures, um, and subsequently worked for Fortress Investment Group for the next six years from 2006 through 2012, which was a really interesting time to be working at Fortress or anywhere in structured finance given the financial crisis that we had, and in particular with a lens on real estate at that time. Um, after departing Fortress, as, as a general disclaimer, the last time I was actually on a trading desk was at Fortress in 2012. So a lot of your listeners I know are actively in the market, actively in front of Bloomberg terminals and actually you know trading securities. Um, I've been out of that market for quite some time, so I'm sure there's going to be some updates to my experience that some of your audience is going to have better insight into. But um, I took my experience at Fortress and then started my own company called Spacious. And it was uh, what we were doing is essentially responding to the shift in mobile technology that says that you can essentially work from anywhere that you can have a fast Wi-Fi connection, a place to plug in a device, a, a good cup of coffee, and you know AC power and, and a comfortable seat. And if you have those basic components, you can pretty much work from anywhere. So Spacious was a distributed network of drop-in workspaces. Uh, we launched 45 locations in both New York City and San Francisco. Um, and then we were acquired in WeWork, acquired by WeWork in 2019. Um, and just for the, you know, the history lesson of, of the story of WeWork, we were the last acquisition in the Adam Newman era before he was, um, you know, before he departed his position. Um, and we were kind of evolved into its next chapter, which we see today. 
Um, but, you know, having seen uh, what the future of work looks like from the business that I built from the ground up and then seeing the inside of WeWork for a brief moment before they had their massive correction, uh, that brought me to some of my perspectives today. So at Spacious, you know, we raised uh, multiple rounds of venture capital, um, which is a very different experience from working in private equity uh, for all kinds of reasons. And I'm happy to dive into any of that, but maybe I'll just stop there and, and let that be my intro for now. No, that's great, and and, and I'm always, I was always fascinated by the idea behind Spacious because you were basically taking, you were monetizing the the time right of these of these restaurants that would open in the evening to then allow them to make money when they're not actually open and serving food. Um, yes, right um, now, now, now let, let's go with that because I think that's that's interesting, right? Because there there is a lot of, I think there is broadly speaking in every economy uh, slack, and that was clearly something you identified as something you could monetize was an opportunity to take, take advantage of that, that space and that slack. But what were some of the challenges you came across when trying to pitch that to restaurants? Because it sounds very intuitive, right? If you're a restaurant owner, why not make money when you're not open? Yep. Uh, but I got to assume there's all kinds of nuances in, in how those agreements took place. Sure. So um, just to be, just to make it super clear, we essentially had a license agreement to operate inside of a restaurant space um, during the hours before they open for dinner. So these would be dinner only restaurants that were essentially vacant until around 5 p.m. Um, and we made use of their dining rooms as a co-working space. And we equipped them with high speed Wi-Fi with uh, power ports everywhere that you needed to plug in. And we had kind of a coffee station set up. So you just have coffee, Wi-Fi and a place to sit down in a really beautiful environment. I mean, we actually we picked Michelin star restaurants throughout the city. Um, and so when you approach a Michelin star restaurant who's operating at that level uh, on the culinary side of things, you know, their, their primary concern is quality of service, timing of service, making sure that their dining guests have the best possible experience. So you don't want a massive disruption for your first few tables that come in the door, you know, for happy hour at five o'clock. Um, you know, with, with a whole bunch of co-working people having to be displaced and, and get out of the way. So we had to give these restaurants plenty of assurances that we knew what we were doing. One of the best things that we did was hire a, um, an ex-GM from the Hillstone Restaurant Group. Uh, her name is Jacqueline Pascasello. She actually now is the CEO of another company. But she helped us talk to restaurants about, you know, how do we make this work for them? So it's not just about the economics. It's also about the on-site management. What you don't want, regardless of whether or not you get marginal income coming from daytime rentals, you don't want to disrupt your your primary bread and butter very literally at the end of the day. So, you know, making sure that we spoke the language of restaurants and we had our operations dialed in for that transition time, that critical transition period between co-working and restaurant time, uh, that was a that was a major hurdle to overcome and did not, you know, was not a small amount of challenges. We ultimately abandoned the restaurant model by the end of by the end of our evolution as a company. And by the time we got acquired by WeWork, we were doing dedicated retail spaces that were just vacant for months at a time prior to finding long-term tenants. And, and we shifted our model from doing partnerships with nighttime restaurants to doing partnerships with landlords who basically had vacant retail stores. Um, and we were fitting out their stores with a with a with a basic setup for drop-in workspace. Um, but we found that once we opened our spaces from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. as opposed to 5 p.m., we saw a huge uptick in our traffic during the day. So, uh, and and our business fundamentals just got so much better when we weren't displacing people at 3 p.m. So, uh, I'll pause there and see if you have further questions about spacious. What was, what was the makeup of the types of uh, people that would that would work at these locations? So, were they primarily freelancers? What types of industries? Any kind of data there? Yeah, at the time, so we launched our first space in early 2016, and we sold in 2019. So it was a relatively young company. It was a, it was a quick exit from a VC perspective. So 
you know, a, 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 a quick turnaround in terms of how much data we had to see how the market was responding to what we were offering. It was everything from uh, people who were freelancers and independent, you know, independently employed. Um, we also had quite a few folks who had the option to, um, you know, they were working for bigger institutions, but they had the option one or two days a week to set their own, you know, work venue. And what's most fascinating about the spacious concept is since 2019, the demand segment of our business has absolutely exploded with the advent of, you know, Zoom enabled remote work. So now you've got even the most traditional conservative work cultures saying, hey, at least one or two days a week, you guys can, our workforce, our team can work from anywhere you want to. You don't have to come to the office five days a week anymore. And it's not even the employers that are driving this decision. The workforce is now saying, we don't want to come in five days a week anymore. You know, if you, if you want me to work this job, you have to give me at least, you know, a couple days a week flex time or whatever. And there's some, some employees, especially in the tech space who say like, I will, I will never work for an office based company. Again, I want fully remote. I am fully remote. I'm dedicated to that lifestyle. And if an employer cannot offer me that, I'm just not going to work for them. So I think the, the, the locus of where the decision on, uh, workers actually, uh, go to work every day during the week, um, is shifting from employer determined to employee determined. And I think this is a macro shift that we can probably um, uh, uh, find plenty of opportunity across the stack of all kinds of real estate to uh, to reshape how we're investing in physical space, how we're programming it, and how office landlords can anticipate what the future looks like. But that, that transition is going to be messy, right? Because you're talking about a lot of entrenched interests and a lot of totally. debt that supports the existing system, right? So, so let, yes. let's, let's talk through that as far as sort of putting, putting your, your, your futuristic hat on for a moment. Yeah. What, what's the impact on different parts of real estate with this broader move to you? Because you said very well, it's like from employer-led to employee-led in terms of where you work, in terms yep. of office, residential, retail what are some of the implications on these different parts of uh, traditional real estate that people should be mindful of? Right, right. So the first thing to think about is the landlord's perspective of the commercial asset that hosts work. And the second part is to think about how the employee chooses where they actually want to live and buy real estate for themselves. I think those are two really important um, uh, points on this axis to understand. The, the first part is how the office landlord starts to anticipate and accommodate and program their asset to capture this new type of demand, which is, which is a different type of demand than it used to be. It used to be office landlords said, okay, let's go out to the brokerage network and get the brokerage network to market our space to long-term tenants who want X amount of square footage for 10 years, right? Like a 10-year lease for an office tenant, an institutional office tenant. That same office tenant today is saying, you know what, during the pandemic, we found that almost all of our employees said they don't want to come back five days a week, you know? So we're going to renew our space or we're going to lease a different space at a fraction of the size and probably a fraction of the cost because supply is so uh, it's starting to expand because people are just not leasing as much space long-term as before. So, you know, an office landlord has to say, all right, how do I program my or market my building to say, okay, this portion of my building, we want to continue to market to traditional leasing, but this other growing portion of my asset is now going to need to accommodate transient workers who are coming in on their own volition to drop into my building for, you know, to work, to work today. And if your employer is not making you go to your office, the office has to be pretty appealing, you know, and this is one of the things that we found about spacious that was pretty, pretty interesting is because it was a beautiful street level, you know, really hip restaurants, you know, part of the restaurant scene in New York, 
These were places that people just naturally wanted to be in for long periods of time on their own volition. And so an employer or an office landlord has to think about their space in a very hospitable way to say, how do we fit our space out in terms of you know making it appealing for the, for the person who has the option to work at that location today to walk down the street and do that or get in their car and you know get out of their home office and go do that. So uh, the, the way that this is going to transform office landlord assets is is nothing short of revolutionary. I mean, it really people really need to rethink this. And there are a few players, you know, that have been around for a long time. IWG, you know, Regis, WeWork, Industrious. These are kind of the incumbents that are still existing post-pandemic today. Um, that are that are going to be the kind of specialists in how do you outfit an office for flex space, hospitable, transient workforce. So I'll pause there on the office landlord side and go to the to the worker side. Which now the question becomes. Where do, I, where do I actually need to live in order to contribute my work to my employer? If I now can work remotely or at least partially remotely for any number of employers that is now kind of a growing list of employers that's going to sponsor remote hybrid work schedules, um, that means that I might be able to live somewhere that's not in the downtown urban core if I don't want to pay up for that real estate. Or I might be able to have a little bit more of a comfortable suburban sprawling home with an extra home office and a yard for my kids and, you know, different kinds of schools and that sort of thing. So, you know, the, since, since work is one of what I consider two major pillars for how people decide where they situate themselves on the map in terms of where they want to grow their family, you know, it's either work and school. So work is how far your commute is from where your residence is. And then school is where your kids are, are being educated and where they're socializing from age zero up to adulthood, right? So if one of those pillars goes away in terms of being a determinant of where you actually decide to live and where you purchase a home, the other remaining pillar might only be school. It might be, okay, I want my kids to grow up in this type of environment uh, with this type of community, with these type of schools. And now I'm, I'm no longer uh, subject to a lengthy commute five days a week because Zoom has enabled me to do this. That has a direct impact on housing values in specific uh, regions of you know, either urban you know, metro areas or you know, across and between states. We've seen a massive migration during the pandemic from you know, dense urban core to suburbia, uh, from California to Texas for all kinds of reasons. You know, there, there are these major shifts that are happening that, are, that have been triggered by the, the new technological capabilities of Zoom and the cultural shifts in the workplace that are now saying you can work from wherever you want to X amount of days per week. And for some people, that's 100% of the time. For other people, that's you know, some partial part of the time. So these are these are major changes that present, I think, just to, for, for your podcast, you know, lead lag, right? This, this is the lead. Like we are seeing that this is the major fundamental shift in what's going to be driving both commercial downtown office real estate and residential footprints of where, of where employees in the workforce can, can now decide to, to live um, where they otherwise had to be closer to their workspace. So maybe I'll pause there and see if you want to take it further. Yeah, no. So, and, and on that, the, I mean, basically, I think what you're addressing is sort of the idea that there's going to be this kind of mass retrofitting to try to figure out how to make existing properties more amenable to uh, this type of a shift in the workplace. But how does the cost of capital in terms of uh, interest rates uh, factor into that? Because if you have elevated rates for some time, uh, you might have demand for co-working space, but the ability for these uh, kind of older buildings or older properties to meet that demand may not be there as quickly. That's right. That's right. I mean, the, the capital improvements required to outfit your, your office space to be more hospitable 
or more suitable for transient workforce coming in and out as opposed to kind of permanent fixed, um, you know, that, that might require a pretty substantial uh, CapEx improvement. Meanwhile, you've got to go back to your lenders to say, okay, I've got X amount of equity uh, illiquid in my building. I've got X amount of debt already outstanding. By the way, that debt was underwritten, assuming that I have long-term tenants on long-term leases, um, you know, at a 70% loan to value or whatever the ratio was for that landlord. Um, I need to find some sort of way to finance the capital build out to reposition my asset to capture the new kinds of value that are going to be coming in from transient work as opposed to leased space. So not only is not only is the capital a little bit shy uh, of being readily available uh, in general, the interest rates are higher, the borrowing rates are higher. Uh, the underwriting is murky for the lending side because you've got fixed leased revenue on you know credit tenant leases um, versus now you've got to compete with everybody else who's trying to get transient you know uh, consumers into the building. Um, so, so you've got a completely different, op, you know, underwriting for the, for the office landlord and from the lender's perspective to say, okay, why would we issue new credit for this landlord when we don't even know how to value a variable revenue office building with a fixed revenue office building. And traditionally in, in commercial real estate, you know, the farther you are down the spectrum of let's say fixed versus variable. So if you've got highly fixed rate, let's say it's a triple net lease, entire building is triple net leased, and it's guaranteed by a credit tenant like Walgreens or somebody, you know, that's essentially a 30-year cash flow that never changes. Um, and you can lend on that pretty easily. This is why a lot of these, you know, Propco Opco structures um, really came to maturity at the time that Fortress was doing a lot of the structures it was doing. Um, you know, you have essentially a master lease that has long-term cash flow. And that's very easy to finance for, for, a, for, a, for a lender or a creditor. Now you've got, uh, you know, an office that has variable revenue in 25% of the building, fixed revenue in, you know, 40% of the building and the rest of it's vacant. How do I put, you know, a cap rate on that? Um, how do I understand where, where, you know, where that shakes out? Now, if you're on the variable side, historically, you know, higher cap rates are for variable uh, revenue assets like hotels, casinos, uh, even, even retail assets in some cases where you have seasonal sales revenue, seasonal sales revenue coming in for, uh, for percentage rents and things like that. Um, so the higher cap rates are kind of uh, associated with, with variable revenue. So, you know, lower variability, lower cap rates, higher variability, higher cap rates. So office landlords are going to get whacked by uh, on two sides from both fundamentals changes and capital markets adjustments to needing to have a new valuation paradigm or a new way to understand variable revenue value coming into an office building that has traditionally been valued and financed on fixed rate uh, income. Right. And with that, there's potential for a lot of whipsaws in a volatile economic environment, right? So if you have a transition towards variable, you know, variable works when you're in a growing economy. You want yes. fixed when you're in a recession. That's right. That's right. Uh, the fix is your downside protection, right? Uh, and, and, you know, you want variable to capture the upside, right? So it's like the, the difference between owning debt and owning equity when things are going up or down, right? Uh, you're, you're kind of protected on your downside with a fixed rate, but you don't get to capture any of the upside if you see demand, you know, spiking for whatever you're selling. Um, so, you know, right now we've got potentially, it's, I would say it's kind of weird because uh, for an office landlord, yes, the fixed rate may protect, protecting the downside, but you also may not capture any of the new upside that's coming from people that are deciding to, to maybe use your asset as a, as a, as a transient workspace. Right. So there's a there's kind of a new and, and growing demand segment. People are going to learn how to use remote workspaces um, either, you know, in one way or the other. And that that may or may not increase demand substantially enough to make up for the lack of opportunity in, in downside protection of, of 
fixed rate rents. Like there may be like this growing demand segment. And, I, you know, part of my thesis is that, that there is, but is that enough to offset, you know, the cap table of a real estate asset where, you know, your, your, the majority of your business plan benefits from the fact that you were able to borrow at, you know, some sort of interest rate that's just just a hair above you know the risk free rate of return with U.S. Treasuries because it's fixed leased real estate, right? So as soon as your risk, as soon as your variable revenue comes in, uh, you know your risk profile goes up because underwriters you know don't like variability; they like fixed. Um, your borrowing rate goes up, so there's this kind of like you know there's this convergence of okay, we're maybe we're capturing more upside, more revenue on a dollar for dollar basis per square foot. But, you know, the risk profile and the borrowing rates are going up. So, you know, the equity value that might have been harvested through that, through that excess revenue has been wiped out by borrowing costs or not enough credit. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Right, and, and this is why then the, the entire discussion around real estate pricing going forward gets to be complicated, right? Because there's all these other variables that factor in. And you're talking about shifts in demand for different types of real estate. Given given these kind of broader trends, Preston, it, it sounds to me like you think that uh, you're probably going to have elevated prices uh, on average compared to history, maybe when it comes to residential or retail that does have that retrofitting aspect. Obviously, residential people working at home, uh, you know, one of the big things that's often referenced is this idea that there's not enough inventory of homes mm-hmm. because people are now working more at home. They want the bigger space and all this. But yep. how, do, how do these kind of broader dynamics of, of everything you're talking about here translate into affordability for the different segments of real estate that, that people typically look at? Right. So first, we should probably just draw a clear line between commercial assets and residential uh, housing. Um, you know, what I, what I just finished describing is really the, the dynamics of income producing commercial assets. And that's going to behave very, very differently from the cost of housing for the average uh, U.S. household, uh, for example. So um, looking, at the, looking at the residential side of things, uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult to say where home prices and home values actually end up. Because what happens when you have an uptick in interest rates and a decrease in the purchasing power of the consumer, um, theoretically, that that eats into the demand or the, the the kind of market demand available for real estate. You know, my my thought on the demand for residential real estate is that it's it's almost it's not necessarily impacted by uh, the, let's let's call it the pure demand piece of it versus purchasing power or pricing, right? So, like the demand is essentially just demographics. How many people are of an age where they might want to buy a house? You know, like that demand is essentially kind of there, regardless of whether or not people can afford. So, like if if affordability comes into into view for someone who's on the cusp, they're, they they want a house, but that doesn't mean that they don't want a house when it's unaffordable, right? So, like in a certain sense, demand is this kind of uh, demographically driven uh, dynamic of the housing market, uh, independent of whatever's happening either in the capital markets or anything else. Um, what I think is interesting about what happens when interest rates spike 
is it actually triggers a supply side winter for housing starts in in many markets, right? So, for example, um, you know, every net present value calculus for a developer, either of a master plan community or a, or a multi unit residential building, um, you know, the key input for that analysis is the purchase price or the rental price of of what's happening there. Now, rents may go up because of inflation and some other things, but the purchase price may be mitigated to some extent because people can't borrow as much uh, uh, as they used to be able to in a lower interest rate environment. So let's say you're you're building homes to sell. You're either doing suburban single family homes or you're doing uh, multi-unit condos to sell, like so build and sell condos. If people can't afford as much on the purchase price for condos because borrowing costs are higher, that means that the developer can't afford to pay as much for the land. The borrowing costs for construction actually increases alongside every other form of borrowing costs. I mean, construction lending is part of the broader capital markets. Um, and so, you know, all the costs to deliver the housing supply also go up at the same time as the purchasing power of the consumer goes up. So meanwhile, demand is not really changing, right? Because demand, in, in, as I presented, and I'm happy to be uh, proven wrong on this, but demand essentially is is fixed based upon the demographics, what people are of an age where they would prefer to own a house if they could afford it. So let's say that there's kind of latent demand that's always there. Um, you know, both the purchasing power of that demand diminishes with rising interest rates and the supply side diminishes with rising interest rates because it's no longer as profitable for a developer to take the risk of borrowing money in a, in, with a construction loan, which has tons of risks in addition to borrowing risks. Right. There's all kinds of risks associated with building, a, you know, doing ground up development. So you're not getting as much supply into the residential housing market and people aren't able to pay as much. So then there's like this feedback loop, which depresses supply at the same time as demand is, let's say, constant, but purchasing power is lowering. So, you know, who knows where that like there, there's almost too many variables working against the ability for the average person to afford a home. And so, you know, while while people may be optimistic, say, okay, well, interest rates are going up, so I might be able to, you know, maybe that'll reduce home values, um, and maybe that'll enable me to purchase a new home. But that's not really how it works. Like, you actually have to borrow more to buy the same home at maybe a lower price, but you're still paying as much on a monthly basis. And there's fewer developers out there taking a risk on on construction. So you kind of get a double a double whammy. Um, and, and one of the things I've, I've kind of been exploring recently in my Twitter feed is this idea of, you know, what if instead of only focusing on on Fannie Mae um, and government kind of securitized bond support for consumer borrowing. What if we did kind of an inverse uh, subsidy for construction borrowing for developers in order to kind of ease the unaffordability problem for the for the average consumer? Uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive for a lot of people who think that de- you know the big bad developers are coming in and inflating prices. Well, if you subsidize developers, you increase supply, which you know if real estate uh, pricing is uh, you know, an intersection between supply and demand of how many people want to buy a house and how many houses there are. Why not just, you know, load up the market with supply um, by, you know, subsidizing borrowing costs for the people that are actually building houses as opposed to the ones that are buying houses. But, you know, happy to discuss that if anybody wants to, uh, either either now or offline. Yeah, no, and, and again, if anybody wants to come up and ask questions, click on that bottom left mic request button. Um, and please make sure you follow Preston here on Twitter. So so I think this is, this is an interesting um point that you bring up Preston. So this what you're saying what you're saying is not essentially that home values can't go down, but rather that that demand is fairly uh constant. There's an inelasticity to uh housing demand. And unless you have the supply side really increased from building, which you're not gonna have with higher rates, you are from a longer term perspective gonna have uh a very tight market, right? Until you 
really get some sort of real incentives to bring on more supply. But it's hard to see how those incentives, I mean, I, I know you brought up that sort of uh, idea there, but it's hard to imagine how you can get uh, an incentive by the home builders to, to build more uh, when you have everybody tapped out also in terms of their debt loads, right? Yep. So That's right. So, so, I mean, what else can be done to try, try to resolve this from a longer-term perspective? Because every single day that goes by that you don't have more inventory, the demographics, you can argue, would favor more demand. So you have this really nasty situation where, yeah, okay, values might drop and it becomes more unaffordable because there's more demand because of time, right? Younger generation getting older, wanting more property yep. or having property to begin with, against the backdrop of a, a fiscal and monetary policy which is completely counter to resolving that. Right, right. So um, I want to, want to preface all of this by saying, like, I am not, I am not a residential specialist. Um, and so, like, I'm going to say things that I think are true to me that others who are better informed will probably have better opinions on. Um, and I'm happy to be educated on this by anybody who's, who's a better specialist in how residential markets uh, are really affected by, by some of these public policies. Now, I will say that residential housing in general is subject to two types of regulatory envelopes. Number one is the monetary policy for how much it costs to borrow as a consumer, which is heavily subsidized and affected by what the Fed does and what's happening at the at the Fannie Mae level with uh, you know consumer consumer mortgages and how liquidity is provided to that market. Um, the other is hyper local zoning and planning boards, right? So unless you know the the, the solution that I've kind of conceived of here um, on, on how to actually fix this is number one you need to you need to empower uh, more developers to be more successful, right? Like the, the the universe of real estate developers is relatively small. It's a it's a highly uh, the, the barriers to entry to become a real estate developer are so high for the average person. Like you either have to be uh, born into a family that already does this, or you know be wildly successful in some other domain and then transfer that success into real estate development. Uh, just because the capital requirement to get started and the personal risk you take on to actually you know, I'd have to guarantee a construction loan personally to get a development project done. These things are just massive barriers for the average person. So, you know, the total quantity of developers in any given market is tiny compared to the general population. Um, you know, they get vilified for all kinds of reasons, but really they, they are the reason why your housing is both available and affordable. Um, you know, so, so to get more uh, subsidies aimed at developers or to combine, let's say, a subsidized uh, development cost with you know the the criteria for earning that cost is like the local jurisdiction has to expand its zoning density or its zoning allowance in a given geography um you know th there's something to do there i am not a public policy person but just looking at it from the capital market side of things it seems like the combination of subsidizing borrowing costs for construction and making that subsidy contingent on an expansion of the zoning envelope in a local jurisdiction that would be one way to make this happen um, and, and so like, that, I think the combo of those two things is required if we want to see more supply actually start to take a chunk out of the unaffordability uh, problem that we have with housing in the United States and in many markets. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... 
How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. During your your time building Spacious Preston, did you look at anything outside of the U.S. as far as how you could expand uh, internationally to see if the model would would work in other countries? Yeah, plenty actually. Uh, and what's interesting when you you know when you raise VC in Silicon Valley, which we did, and you raise it from you know New York VCs, the press that you get reaches around the world. Like I, I can't imagine, like, I could not have imagined that twelve different Japanese journalists reached out to me as a CEO of Spacious to talk about how we were making better use of downtime slack in commercial real estate. So like the concept was uh, quickly uh, identified as viable in a number of different markets around the world. Um, and people were reaching out to me for insight into how this, you know, what the, what the unit economics were, how to make it work, how did you structure your, your license agreement with restaurants, you know. So, you know, the, the, the opportunity for, I think, let's say franchising, I think is absolutely there for the concept of drop-in workspace in many different markets across both uh, North America and Europe and Asia. Um, you know, it, it really is like driven back to this kind of, you, you kind of zoom out to say, no pun intended, but you say like, what is the, what is the consumer technology that enables someone to work from anywhere and how saturated and how, how much adoption is there in any given geography of the technology that enables that. And so, you know, the fact that uh, a laptop and a Wi-Fi connection gets you uh, you know, connected to your employer, no matter where your employer may be on earth, that is essentially in all developed nations around the world today. Um, and so, you know, looking at the opportunity to take any given space that might be suitable for someone to sit down with a laptop, log into work and contribute productive, you know, productivity to that employer, like that's everywhere. And the opportunity for that is essentially bottomless. And it is going to be uh, you know, location specific and, and asset specific, you know, I really do view it as kind of like a, a retail franchise opportunity um, for either a singular brand that wants to kind of scale in that way, or it's it's just a new category of a retail offering in, in many different urban and suburban contexts where there's increasing demand for people to say, all right, I am tired of working at home. Uh, in my in my quasi home office with my kids screaming in the background, I've got to get out of here in order to be productive. Like, where do I go if my employer is no longer sponsoring an office space five days a week? So, to the extent that that is happening anywhere, there is an opportunity to spin up a drop in workspace, either with your own independent local kind of uh, brand that speaks to your local community, or by you know uh, paying for a license to use somebody else's brand with a franchise concept. I mean, I think I think that is a deep and long opportunity for the next generation of those who are interested in new retail concepts that are going to be viable in a future of remote work. Because you have the experience of raising money and you mentioned Silicon Valley and, you know, kind of the, let's call it the golden era of, of startups to some extent, which now is largely gone, right? Because of higher <laughs> rates. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious, just looking back at, at, at your own experience, Preston, was it very clear that there was a a bubble and there was so much focus on unicorns and money being thrown around to all these different ideas. I mean, obviously what you did was very unique, different, was profitable, but I'm sure you were competing against a lot of entrepreneurs that had a great idea that was really probably just nonsense, right? But, but still I not mean, yeah, I mean, we were competing with WeWork, to be fair. I mean, do you want to, so like, so you're you making know, my point. Is what, no, no, okay. Yeah. So, so like, you know, we, 
SoftBank was the, you know, and Tiger, uh, and, and, you know, as a follow on, you know, SoftBank was, was this kind of blitz scale stocking horse out there that was screwing up fundamentals for the entire VC community. You know, like anything you wanted to do, like that, that, that was, that looked like it had any hint of scalability, right? You're, you're competing against these, uh, these massive uh, behemoths out there that have a blitz scale approach to, to growing a business where you essentially just buy market share and you say, you know, to hell with unit, unit economics, let's just, let's just grow this thing until it becomes so obvious and ubiquitous for everybody that we box out all the competition and the little guys can't even start up. Right. So, you know, we had such an innovative approach to the supply side by not signing leases um, and by only doing license agreements with, uh, with restaurants and landlords at the retail space level you know, that's what raised the eyebrow of WeWork is, you know, they looked at our supply side model and said, hey, you've got a way to scale a footprint of drop-in workspaces without ever having to sign a lease with a commercial landlord. And that's a way for us to grow faster than we have before. I mean, we were we were alive for just shy of three years and we launched 45 locations in, you know, two different cities. with 50, We only raised $15 million of venture capital, right? I mean, that that is a supply side model that 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 cooks in terms of its its relative power against an incumbent like WeWork. So you know that's what that's what caught their attention. It actually turns out, um, you know, it turns out that they they ended up using our our software because we actually built a really good user design software. And if you go to spacious.com now, it reroutes you to WeWork on demand. So their on demand drop in workspace. Um, is is still using a lot of the tools that we built in house at Spacious. So it was a it was a supply side model on the real estate that was superior to leasing, and then it was you know a superior piece of technology that enabled kind of a seamless walk in check in uh, from from the consumer facing side of the, of the the app. You know, walking into the store. But it's a little bit of a of a digression there. I mean, I think generally speaking, if we are going to say you know, if we are past peak blitz scale, you know, to hell with unit economics. Uh, venture capital. Uh, first of all, I don't know if we're beyond that, right? I think that model for some types of companies that depend upon network effects to be successful, I think will always be part of the playbook of venture capital. You know, what's happening in VC right now is the same thing that's happening globally is, you know, the yield curve is is uh, is changing such that you don't have to take venture level risks in order to get the kinds of yields that can be that can be promised by venture. I mean, if you look historically at venture, they do maybe marginally better than private equity in some cases, maybe maybe mid to high teens returns. I mean, you get these these headline stories of this is a hundred x or a two hundred x or a thousand x on the first people that put a you know put a check into this company, but those are the outliers that pay for all the losses, right? That that pay for all the nine out of ten that completely failed and just went to zero. Um, and so, you know, on balance, venture capital competes with every other type of capital in the markets. And so, you know, if your yield targets as a ma- as a managed fund are to you know to have you know a balanced portfolio with it let's say a 10 to 15 percent yield in some asset classes and a kind of a more stable yield than other asset classes that stable yield is now coming up which means you don't have to take nearly as much risk for the the higher yielding stuff and so people are saying why would i invest in venture when i can get the same yield with you know lower rated bonds right um so there, there's 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 a few things happening with venture. I think the fundamental business uh, plan of blitz scaling to achieve network effects using venture capital to do that is always going to be part of the playbook for some types of companies, primarily software. Um, but you know, happy to happy to go down that rabbit hole if we want to talk about that more. Yeah. So great question. Um, so to 
to be perfectly clear, I don't have any supply calcs. I, I haven't actually done the data research to really understand market by market how the demographics are going to affect. What, what I'm what I'm using is a broad broad stroke heuristic of the the size of the baby boomer generation in let's say North America, and I think. Canada's demographics are slightly more skewed to an aging population than the U.S. is uh, for a variety of reasons. And I think what you're describing is, is, is also another compounding effect of the problem. Now, in the future, like not to be too morbid, but at a certain point, the boomer generation just won't be here anymore. And every house that they're sitting on, either as a primary residence or a secondary home in a lot of cases, will come back to the market. Now, when it comes back to the market, it's going to need substantial capital improvements, right? So, you know, uh, people who age uh, in their own homes past retirement and expected to be the last home that they ever live in, they're probably, with a retirement income, they're not going to be making major capital improvements. They're not going to be updating the kitchen. They're not going to be making it suitable for a new family that wants to come in and buy that house. So I think, you know, you have to almost look at that as like, uh, land value plus that comes onto the market when that supply finally hits. Um, you know, if, if lifespans are extending, that's compounding this problem as well. So, you know, if, 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 the, gov- if the government decides to create a policy that extends the ability for people to stay in their homes longer past their kind of, uh, you know, what the natural economics of their lifespan might allow for, I, I, don't, know how to, I don't know how to articulate that without sounding like completely morbid. Um, but, you know, if that's actually happening on top of higher borrowing rates, on top of a supply side winter, yeah, that's that's even more problematic for housing affordability if you're speaking to a voting base as a policymaker who is aging, right? And that's what it comes down to in a lot of these cases. Like the, the, the availability of, of housing um, is, is really a function of two different types of policy. It's local zoning and it's monetary government policy. And if, if there's a third policy that says we're going to support, you know, people's ability to stay in their homes till well past, you know, the point in time when they naturally might have moved or downsized or gone somewhere else, um, that creates an even bigger problem for the generation coming up. Uh, so, so then it becomes as a policymaker, who, who, who's my who's my constituent audience that I want to make a policy for here? Is it the aging population that represents the majority in some voting districts, or is it? you know, the new generation that's going to actually drive the economy for the next generation. I mean, this is this is really an important political question, almost more so than it is a natural supply and demand question, even though they are very, very closely correlated and tied together. I want to go back, uh, Preston, to the, the WeWork exit for a minute here, because you said that essentially they, they use the, the software primarily. I mean, that's really what they, the, the legacy, I guess, from from their perspective of that acquisition was. As yep. an entrepreneur, somebody put a lot of you know, blood, sweat, and tears, right? It's like I, I always go back to this point that nobody knows how hard the life of an entrepreneur is until they've actually run a business and either failed or not failed, but actually know the the pain of trying to grow something. Um, yes. when, you, when you see what happened with how WeWork ended up using the the intellectual uh, capital, the IP of, of Spacious, how, how does that make you feel? Because really, that wasn't the bulk of your, your business. The business was obviously the licensing agreements with the restaurants, the model. Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. I think um, when when a decision was made to not expand the WeWork retail for, uh, the WeWork footprint to the retail street level, um, you know, WeWork decided that the 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 remaining asset. So I, I think we we offered two assets to WeWork. It was the it was the supply side model of blitz scaling retail uh, drop in workspace, 
and it was the technology to support that, right? And and, and you can't have one without the other. Like you like you need specific consumer facing tools and administrative tools for the actual operations team that runs those spaces. And we we built both of those in house. So uh, when you ask me how I feel about the fact that they took the software rather than the uh, operating model, I feel really proud about it because number one had an engineering team, which can, which included some Canadian engineers, by the way. There, there was almost no time when we didn't hire Canadian engineers, um, just as a sidebar. Um, we had a team that was like six people. And we work had a team that was hundreds of engineers. And they decided that our software was better than anything that they had built. So I was really proud about that because we kind of, we built our product constantly asking the question, what should we not build in order to get to solve this problem. You know, how can, how can we manage this with the, with the least amount of spend possible in a lean way? And what that actually created was kind of a, a, a process of invention by constraint. And we built a better set of tools as a result, as opposed to saying, okay, here's an unlimited budget for any engineer that you might hire. You get this kind of like quagmire of product direction that results in what we saw of the WeWork app in 2019, which is basically nobody was using it. Um, and, and it didn't do all, didn't really add that much value to the consumer experience. So like we had only the tools that we needed to run the business. And we discovered through that process that these were the essential things that any business would need if they are to use any software to run a drop-in workspace. So I feel really proud about the fact that a huge behemoth like we work with the number of engineers that they had on their team at the time ended up adopting uh, a user experience interface that we designed with a very, very lean team. Um, so that was, that was something that I, that I kind of enjoyed. Now, I, you know, I'm a little bit sad about the fact that we didn't see a proliferation of retail drop-in workspaces because frankly, I could use one more often than they are available to me today as someone who works from home on a frequent basis. Um, but I do think that there's a bright future for those who want to do retail drop-in workspaces. And I think the supply side model for that, be at least license or franchise, uh, is going to evolve very similarly to the way that the hotel industry has evolved with, uh, you know, lease, license, or franchise uh, hotel flag, or even a coffee shop or a fast food restaurant. I think it's it's a really interesting way to map out the future that we, I think, we kind of hashed out and hammered out one way to do that. But I think it's it's one of a, of a, of a whole spectrum of different ways to, to solve that problem. I love that, that idea of sort of innovation by constraints, right? Because it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting... It's an interesting story, right? So to your point, we work at all these engineers and they've got essentially unlimited capital and you guys were able to do something, you know, far better than they did with much less. Now, that that's an interesting and maybe helpful uh, story for the future because if capital in general is going to be constrained because of higher rates, yeah. there's, there's, there's a new kind of opportunity, new kind of innovation trend that could be coming where it's not just a function of, you know, everybody throwing money at a problem to try to solve it and all yeah. the inefficiencies that come from it. Yeah, you know, I mean, you don't have to think very hard uh, about a solution when you can just solve the problem by throwing more money at it. You know, I mean, the same thing kind of the thing, same thing kind of happens with uh, with Fed policy. If you want to stay on topic to a lot of your other conversations, like, okay, well, let's just let's just pump trillions of dollars into the economy uh, as a way to solve you know a pandemic you know uh, shutdown, right? Like, did, did we did should we Think about more surgical approaches to specific parts of the economy that might, you know, actually benefit better from more or less investment if we kind of approach that way. Or given that we have an unlimited checkbook, let's just, you know, write a huge check and create all these other problems and inefficiencies in the process, right? I think, you know, necessity is a mother of invention. Uh, 
is is a is a very true principle regardless of the context. Um, so so yeah, I think I think having to solve for the lack of a resource is is how many many very fantastic inventions get created. What would you say was the um, the biggest thing you learned in the journey of building spaces to to exit, and and what was perhaps the biggest surprise? Because right? everyone is always optimistic that they're going to build a big company, right? And, yeah. and 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 there's always sort of the, the I always make the joke. It's kind of like you know when you're an entrepreneur, it's like home construction. It always takes longer and costs more money than you think. Totally, right? But totally. But but what were some of the things that you learned in in retrospect from from your experience? Yeah, something that I learned, I think, which uh, was also a surprise, is how critical the skill set of storytelling is when you are the founder of a business. I mean, your job as the CEO and the founder and the visionary is to essentially tell a story many, many times to many, many audiences. Um, and the simpler, the better. Um, you know, you first have to pitch a co-founder or a founding team uh, or even a consumer. Like you have to like communicate what your what your value proposition is to the world. Um, and getting really, really good at the discipline and the skill set of storytelling is something that I was surprised was so critical. Um, something else that surprised me uh, was how much I actually really ended up loving the people that worked there um, and, and really uh, appreciating uh, watching talent grow inside of an organization. I mean, it's inspiring. Uh, one of the best, most re- most rewarding things of uh, of building a business is watching your uh, watching your team evolve under your uh, under your vision and kind of un- in, inside the framework of something that was once just a part of your imagination. Like these really amazing human stories come out of it. And so I think those two things. I think storytelling as a key fundamental pillar of, of founding anything uh, and creating change is is huge. And the second one is just like watch the people and and follow the human stories inside your own company, and and you will you will go to sleep wonderfully every night uh when those things happen uh it's, it's a wonderful thing no i well, i think that's actually I, I completely agree with you i mean you have to you have to be a good story seller right it's story yes, selling totally hard. yep totally right i mean i think um yeah it, uh, i always make this point it's like it doesn't matter if you're an accountant or uh, somebody that's actually selling something uh, literally i mean everybody has to be able to communicate sell properly and do so in a very succinct and, and convincing way because you're never going to get anything done otherwise. So I, I often find on on Twitter, some people are cynical of quote-unquote salespeople, but the reality is everybody's selling is just made up, it's just in different forms, right? And that's a that's a hard skill, right, to learn. I mean, part of that is personality-driven. I've known you for a while, Preston. I don't, I don't necessarily view you as, as a tremendous extrovert, but when you're story-selling, you kind of have to be. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the process of storytelling is essentially one of the keys to it is having a really good mental model of your audience. And, and, and that's what good salespeople do too, right? Like good salesperson will learn anything and everything they can about you and what you need and what you want. And they will speak to those motivators versus, you know, whatever they find most interesting. And so, you know, what you're trying to do is, and these are good, good authors, good, you know, novelists, um, you know, they, they, they tap into something fundamental about everything that it means to be human and they've got a really, really accurate, if not abstract, in some cases, model of who they're speaking to. Um, and that is critical for effective storytelling is you have to really get into the mind of your audience. Steve Jobs was great at that. I mean, he basically just said, like, people don't care how, how a machine works. They just want to know what it can do. Right. And at a time when computers were new for consumers, it's like, OK, why do I care 
how the RAM and the ROM, uh, what's the difference, you know, between those two things? Uh, I don't care. Can it, can it play music, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think it is a, uh, it's, that's it, a fantastic question. And it's a, it's a major problem in so many different ways that the average American household is now not only competing with their neighbors for the best houses in the neighborhoods that they want to live in, they're now competing with an institution that's headquartered in some, you know, center of capital markets in North America, right? So like huge problem that we now have consumers competing with institutions for shelter. Um, I, I don't know how else to spin that or frame that other than to say like major problem. I think in order to solve it, it you know, you run into this question of how, how, how heavily should we regulate or prohibit uh, the private trade of, of property, you know, like when you say, okay, let's, let's mitigate this or try to solve this. All of a sudden you cross these uh, almost sacred lines in the context of a, a private market economy of, do we start to regulate or prohibit certain types of private trade amongst either corporations or individuals? You know, there, there's, you know, there's also the, the, the very long legacy of people purchasing property properties through holding companies. Right. I mean, as soon as, even if you are, you know, if you if you purchase property through an LLC as opposed to in your personal name, and it's a single family residence, you know, there's no historically there's been no transparency on you know understanding who who owns that asset. Um, if it's just an anonymous LLC, and they could own two dozen assets in that same neighborhood, or they could be just a person who lives there who's got a business at home, and they've decided just to create a holding company, but it's essentially the same person who lives there. And they just decided to own it through an LLC for tax purposes, right? So it's it's really this massive problem of competing with uh, the average household uh, now has to compete with institutions. And I don't have a great solution for it. I think it's great to highlight the problem as one that's systemic and then we need to solve it. Well, and I would add also part of that that makes it even more complicated is, you know, even going back to this inventory issue, I keep making this point that some of these estimates around housing shortage are like, you know, there's 3 million homes that are supposedly short that needs to be built, depending on who you're looking at for the estimates. But meanwhile, there's 10 million second homes. Uh, yep. Forget about third homes or fourth homes. Right? So you do have this other other dilemma, which is that uh, the concentration of wealth results in more concentration of property, which makes affordability even worse for the vast majority of the population. It's not just competing against institutions. It's competing on, on the 1% of the 1% who keep re-leveraging that real asset. That's right. That's right. It becomes more fuel to the fire of inequality on many, many different levels, you know, because you get the, everybody knows that the more scale you have with an asset base, the more borrowing power you have, um, and that, which allows you to buy more assets, right? So it's just, it's a compounding feature of uh, a market-based economy that, that we, that provides many, many other benefits, but also has these, uh, you know, these side effects that are highly problematic in some cases. And sometimes, completely, uh, you know, un undermines the, the spirit of what we're trying to do, which is provide housing for the people who live in a society. Uh, I know, I, th I think this, the, the voice, exactly what you've articulated is, is, is really, really important for uh, the institutional audience to take, listen to. Um, and, and I'm not sure, like, I'm not going to be the one that says, like, here's the solution, right? Like, let's just say just off the top of my head, I'm sure there's all kinds of problems with doing this. Let's say the only type of entity that can buy a single family home is a is a is an individual or a household versus a corporation? I think that's probably got all kinds of side effects and problems that people would that, that would create you know you know issues. But let's just say that that's one solution. 
like we need to start thinking about it because we've got not only do we have all these other kind of compounding layers of housing on affordability we've got this, this additional problem so if it's not borrowing rates construction rates uh you know land entitlement and zoning risk um you've got you know the government of canada as the prior listener chimed in and said like they, they're actually supporting you know staying in a house for longer than your you know than your useful life of, of that much house for for whatever age you are and you've got institutions coming up buying them up in bulk and you've got the single family rental market coming from you know vacation rentals like airbnb and vrbo like all these things are converging on the affordability of the standard household to be able to come into the age where it's time to buy a home and like something's got to give if we're actually going to solve this problem. So thank you for voicing that. I think it's really, really important to hear uh, how it affects every household when you're thinking about these things in pure financial terms. Like you have to, you have to get off the spreadsheet for a second and think about what's happening on the ground with people in their own lives. And, and, and President, maybe for the final sort of take here from your, and again, everybody here, please make sure you follow Preston on uh, Twitter. Um, and I'll, I'll dovetail that a little bit with what Rhonda was just saying, because I was in Boise, Idaho, uh, doing a CFA chapter presentation. And I was making small talk with some of the attendees and was talking about, you know, uh, the housing market there. And one of the uh, things that was said to me was that those in Boise uh, were really starting to have a lot of hatred towards California <laughs> as a state. Because <laughs> what ended up happening is a lot of people ended up moving from California to Boise. And suddenly that influx of people moving from one state to another, right, with Idaho that they ended up uh, pushing the price of everything else up around them, right? And meanwhile, the the because of remote work, those people leaving from California to live in Boise to bid up those prices, they still have largely the same income, whereas those on the ground in Boise uh, don't, right? Because the, the local dynamics are different. So, so relating that back to residential real estate, uh, what is – what does one do, Preston? Because it, it sounds to me like there are a lot of broader shifts happening that affect all different parts of real estate uh, based on demographics, based on technology. If somebody were to say to themselves, okay, the only way to, to counter this is to, is to be an investor themselves, mm-hmm. perhaps in, the, in a commercial real estate market, what areas do you think people should focus on to counter some of these, these uh, changing dynamics? Oh, uh, okay. So – the premise of this question is, if I am an investor, what kind of action can I take to improve some of these systemic problems, right? Yeah, and, and, to, and to keep up effectively, right, from all these other things that are happening on the, on the local ground, so to speak. Yeah, I honestly, I, I think that the best thing to do if you have capital to invest in real estate is to invest in your own backyard um, and, and to do so in a way that expands the, the opportunities that exist in your community to participate in the local economy. You know, I think... Um, so many, so many of the uh, the way that real estate investing has been productized, and people have attempted to scale it across markets nationwide and internationally. Um, that kind of, it, you know, real estate investing by proxy by distance is what has created a lot of these problems. Versus thinking about real estate as the the actual ground uh, uh, under which your own life and your own community flourishes, you know. Uh, so I think that that is probably the message that I would say to anybody who's investing in real estate is don't do it remotely, do it locally and do it with a mind for how does this improve the value for everyone in my own community versus just myself and my own property value. Um, because it will, it will compound over a longer period of time into a higher value for your own property if you're making investments that expand beyond the footprint of your own personal parcel. So that's what I would say. And there's really is, there is no singular real estate market. There are 
many, many diversified markets and everyone is totally unique. Uh, and it's a function of the people who live there and do do what they do there, you know, work there, farm there, go to school there. Um, all the things that are locally to you, that's what you should be investing in. Spread roots and, and go deep. That's what I would say. Uh, 100% agree with that. Uh, again, everybody, please make sure you follow Preston. Phenomenal conversation. I've known Preston for a long time, but we've never actually talked in these uh, terms. Usually it's over a drink. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> appreciate everybody that's joined. Uh, I'll do another one of these spaces uh, as usual tomorrow as I continue to travel and try to survive this shit show environment that we're all in. Uh, but thank you, Preston. Really do appreciate uh, your knowledge here. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate the time. All right. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.